First John chapter 5. First John 5. We are at the end, the finish line. And when you get to the end, of course, you're kind of left with the, okay, so what? Like, what did we learn? What did we learn from First John? John's really nice to us. He kind of gives us a summary at the end of everything we've learned. From a personal perspective, we've learned two super important truths in verses 13 through 16. John says, number one, we can know that we have eternal life. We can know that. That's If you haven't learned that from this, this book, then you need to go back to the beginning. We can know that we have eternal life. Secondly, we can have absolute confidence when we pray that God both hears us and that He will answer us. Amen? We know that. We've learned that. From a, a doctrinal perspective, we also learn two more super important truths. Verse 17, God's standard should never be moved. That's a truth. Secondly, falling short of God's standard doesn't mean we lose our salvation. Amen? All right. Well, what do we know, though, from a practical perspective? In other words, how should this letter change how we live? Well, John closes out with these last verses by sharing four more things we know, and then he's going to send us off with a mission. So, chapter 5, verse 18 John says, we know that whosoever is born of God does not sin, but he that is begotten of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. And we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So four things here that John tells us that we know. First off, he says, the enemy can't have us. You need to know that. The enemy cannot have us. He says, we know that whosoever is born of God does not sin, but he that is begotten of God keeps himself, and that wicked one does not touch him. John here, this word know, it means absolute, settled, forever head knowledge. It's not about things you've experienced, things you feel. It's this is doctrine, this is truth. It's just settled no matter how we feel. And what do we know? That whosoever is born of God does not sin. Now, it's something we've already learned from this book. John, he has been teaching this the whole time. So this is not a new idea. So why does John say, well, we know? Why does John, in fact, keep repeating this phrase at the end? We know, we know, we know. The reason he keeps saying it is because we need to add these truths to our arsenal of unmovable things that you and I stand on. And what's the truth? This one, that if you've been born of God, and the, the phrase here, whosoever is born, it's in the perfect tense, which means it's the one whose birth came out from God and who therefore remains God's child forever. We did not birth ourselves physically, did we? Your mom would strongly object to any contribution you made to the birthing process. We don't birth ourselves spiritually either. When we turn from our sin and we place our trust in Christ, at that moment when we place our faith in Christ, God births us anew and we become His child forever. All right? In John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, John explains this. He says in John 1, verse 12, but to as many as received Him... To them he gave power or the right to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So he's explaining, he's saying, how does it happen? You got to trust Jesus. When you place your trust in Jesus, it says he gives you the 
right to be called a child of God. He says, you're born again, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The process doesn't work like this. All right, Jesus, I believe you died for me on the cross, and I'm going to turn from my sin. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to begin the birthing process. No. That is something that God does. It's something He supernaturally does. He makes us born from above, born again, gives us new life. And what does it mean to be born again? We already covered that, but just sum it up again. It's our spirit was dead because of sin. We couldn't have a relationship with God, but He makes us alive so that we can have this relationship with Him now. That person whose birth came out from God and who is, remains God's child forever, that person, they do not sin. We know already from all the rest of First John, he's not saying that you don't ever fail or you don't ever fall short. If that's what he's saying, then verse 17 makes no sense. No, it means he does not regularly engage in wrongdoing. It's in that present continual tense. Someone who's born again doesn't live for sin. They don't engage regularly in wickedness. They engage regularly in obedience. Genuine believers obey God. But what's interesting is that's not John's point. He's already told us that. What John says next is a marvelous truth that shows us that just as we didn't birth ourselves, We aren't the one who keep ourselves in Christ. He says, hey, this is true, but that's not my point. My point is this, but he that is begotten of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. The word but there is the strongest form of contrast in the New Testament language. John says, yes, what I said is just true. I've been telling you that all this letter, but don't mistakenly conclude that your sanctification, you're becoming more like Christ you're staying in Christ, that it's all up to you. Instead, realize this, he that is begotten of God keeps himself. Now, the word here, begotten, it's the same word as born. He whosoever is born of God does not regularly sin, but it's not the same tense, which means it's referring to someone else. It speaks of a snapshot in time. See, my process of Becoming a child of God, it happens the moment I get saved, but I don't look very much. Like someone might see me the day day I get saved and they go, you're God's kid. You don't look like God's kid. But then over time, we look more and more and more like his kid, right? We become more like Jesus. This one, though, refers to a snapshot, the person begotten here. This is talking about somebody else. This is talking about the only begotten son of God, Jesus. You see, Jesus had no birthing process He's the eternal Son of God. However, if you were to take a snapshot of the Trinity, if you say, hey, we're going to take a family photo of the Trinity, and you were to look at that photograph and say, who do you think is God's son? You'd look right at Jesus and go, I mean, that guy, he looks just like his dad. He lays everything here, this snapshot, that's got to be the son. And yet, even though Jesus is in the position of the son and has characteristics of someone who went through a birth process, He never did. So this snapshot here refers to Jesus. So if you're, whosoever is born of God doesn't sin, but that's not John's point. John says, but you're not keeping yourself. The only begotten of the Father, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, He is keeping yourself. That's why it says Himself here. It's not referring to Jesus Himself. It's referring to us. Jesus doesn't need any guarding. The word keeps here, it means continually guards or watches over or keeps someone in a certain state. 
I don't keep myself in Christ. Jesus is the one who guards me, watches over me, protects me, and keeps me in Himself. He's the one who does the birthing, and He's the one who does the keeping. Now, there are multiple places in the Bible that tell us to keep a watch over ourselves. We're going to see one in verse 21 at the end of the book. But that is not the case here. John tells us Jesus continually watches over the believer, keeping the believer in the same condition that occurred when God birthed them. Isn't that awesome? Philippians 1.6, He which has begun a good work in you will what? Complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. Now, why is that truth so important to have in our arsenal? Well, because we have an enemy who hates us and who wants to destroy us. And John says here, because Jesus is protecting us, it says the wicked one cannot touch us. That wicked one refers to Satan. He cannot touch us. It doesn't mean not like lay his hand on us. It means he can't fasten hold on us. He can't grasp us. He can't lay hold of us to seize us. Vincent, in his word studies of the New Testament, says this is a touch that exerts a modifying influence upon the object. Satan does not have the power to grab hold of us and modify our standing in Christ. A.T. Robertson, in his word pictures in the New Testament, says this is a touch that carries the idea of intent to harm. You see, the enemy threatens you and me by saying, I've got a grip on you. I will unmake you so that you aren't in Christ anymore. You can never know that you're truly saved. And you know, if you've been living under that, that idea is terrifying. Am I really his? Am I really safe? Am I really secure? But that's a lie that you never need suffer under. Never. Jesus is keeping you in him. Amen? Some of you are happy about that. Jesus is keeping you in him. And Satan can't touch you to the degree that he can pluck you out of Jesus' hand. Jesus said those words in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Jesus, before he was crucified, he prayed a prayer just like that, that God would, that the Lord would guard us and protect us. He prayed that for his disciples. John chapter 17, verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. He prayed that for us. He wants that for, from us. Listen, Satan and the enemy forces, they can attack you. They can persecute you. They can scream or whisper lies to you, but they cannot have you. Two of you are happy. They can't, he cannot have you. That's awesome news. Isn't that an important truth to stand on? I mean, it changes how we live every day. How would being convinced of that change your day-to-day living? I'll tell you how it changed mine. He comes up to me with all of his lies and all of his threats, and I just say, I don't even know why you're talking to me. Take it up with my lawyer. I don't even know why you're communicating to me. I'm not, I'm not going to even disagree with you. You're a failure, okay? You, you fall short every day. Probably way more than you've suggested. But it doesn't matter. You can hurl whatever you want at me. I'm in Christ. You can't touch me. Can't have me. Someone else already possesses me, and he will never let me go. 
Are you convinced that Jesus is the one who has a grip on you? Are you convinced that the enemy cannot have you? Because you need to be. It's something we need to know. Well, the second thing we know, not only is that the enemy can't have us, but it's the world isn't our home. John says, and we know. Again, this is the the same thing, that settled forever knowledge. This is the next thing you need to add to your arsenal of unassailable truths. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in wickedness. First off, we know that we are of God, which means we have come from out of God. We've been born of God. We, We talked about that in the last verse. And because we've been spiritually reborn, our very existence is altered. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. You say, I know we're peculiar, Pastor Will. We're weird. That word peculiar means a special group set apart for a special purpose. We have a whole different purpose now. That you should show forth the praises of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Our existence has been altered. That's why we don't live for the same things. We have become citizens of heaven, and now we're ambassadors on this earth. This place is not our home. It's not. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, the writer of Hebrews utters these important words. He says, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. In other words, here on, the, on this earth, in this life, we have no continuing city. Whatever, whatever place you belong to or you associate with, if you have a community locally here, or you, you, you know, like I, I'm from Sanford, I'm a Sanfordian. That's my people. Whatever people you identify with, whatever group you think you're a part of here, whether it's a nation or, or, a, or a group of people that, that do this you know, for a living or do this with their time and energy, you don't belong to that anymore. You have no such continuing connection to any city here because we're looking for one, another one that's coming. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul the Apostle He puts it this way, for our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That word conversation, it means a state, like not a state of being. It means like a a government entity. It means a commonwealth of citizens, a form of government. Our form of government is in heaven. Our state that we belong to, like our passport, it's in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And as a citizen of heaven, I am looking for something entirely different than an unbeliever is. And one thing in particular I'm looking for, Paul says, is for Jesus to return and take down every existing government in order to replace it with his government. Do you understand that? That's what, if you're a believer, that's what you're looking for, all right? You are looking for Jesus to come and take down every existing government in order to replace it with his government. You and I are praying as Jesus taught us to pray, which is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Just like it's in heaven, I want it here. Our citizenship is not here. It's there. Are you convinced of that? Because it's something that we need to know. We're of God. We came from out of him. We belong to him. Are you convinced of that or are you living 
for the same things that unbelievers live for because they do live differently. The end of verse 19, it says, we also know this, that the whole world lies in wickedness. The word for world here, it's the word cosmos in the Greek, and uh, we think of the cosmos as like the whole universe, but the Greeks use it to describe the order that's found in the universe. Like when you look out there, you see order, you see that it looks and you go, man, everything fits where it's supposed to. If anything moved even just a little bit from where it currently is, it'd be a disaster. We see order. Well, the New Testament writers, they latched onto this word to describe how lost humanity orders itself apart from the Lord. How in hostility to God and His ways, they order their life based on their own understanding, their own pursuits, their own values, their own way of thinking. It refers to all the earthly philosophies and mindsets that seduce us away from God. As I get older, driving becomes a different experience. My reflexes aren't as quick, and also, most of me is doing pretty good, but the thing that's, that's gone the most is my hearing. I don't hear anywhere near as well as I used to. And I don't know about you, if your hearing has gone, gotten a little bit worse, when like cars come flying by you, it tends to jolt me a little bit. And I was driving home yesterday, from, or Friday from dropping the kids off for the conference, and as I was driving home, this guy comes through on one of those... I don't know if it's proper to use the term, but it was a very loud motorcycle. So, and one of the ones that they lean over, so I'll leave the rest unsaid. But anyway, he comes, he had to be going like 120 or something because I'm not a slow driver. So, and he comes, just whirring by me. And when that happens, I, I jump, I kind of startles me because I don't hear it coming from far away. And so it's up on me right away. And, and so it, zoom, you know, I jump, you know, and oh, I was like, hate those motorcycles, you know, for just a small moment, just a small moment, I thought to myself, yeah, he thinks he's so cool in his motorcycle, you know, I'm in my, I'm in my minivan, all it takes for me is just to do this for one second, and he's toast. <laughs> I only had that thought for just a couple seconds, then I prayed for his safety. But like, what keeps us from doing something like that? Like, what keeps us from doing wicked things? Like, what keeps us from just going, well, I want to be with as many men or women as I want to be with. Like, I want to I wanna treat anybody however I want to treat. I just want to do what I want to do. Like, what keeps us from that? Philosophers would say social mores, or they would describe some type of moral code. But the reality is, if we look through history, we find periods in time when people operated by a different moral code horrible things were done in a community or a society or a nation because the moral code was radically different. Life is not valued as something precious. Now, as I was driving home yesterday, you ever have those days where traffic's just like nasty, like people are just, they're mad? And it just felt that way yesterday. It's like nobody, nobody was being nice on the road. Everybody was grumpy. Everybody's cutting each other off. And I'm just thinking, Lord, just get me home. But like, what would happen if everybody just said, no, not today. I don't care about anybody else besides myself. We already know what will happen because the Bible tells us what will happen. There'll come a time when the Lord says, if I don't come back, there'll be no life left. You all will just kill each other. So, when we talk about the way that 
the world orders itself. The world doesn't have to be this bloody mess where everybody's stabbing each other for it to be horrible. It's the mindset that says we set up our own moral code, we set up our own ideas of right and wrong, we set up our own concepts of how life should be lived. He says that whole world, that whole philosophy, it lies not in wickedness, but literally in the Bible language, in the wicked one. And that word lies, picture yourself when you lie down in a recliner, because that's what it means. It means to recline, to rest in. Anyone who has not been born again, whether they realize it or not, is reclining in the enemy's grip. We can say, well, we're a moral people, or we have moral values, or we are trying to do the best that we can to make sure that we have a moral society. It doesn't matter what the best you can is because you are reclining in the grip of the enemy if you are not in Christ's grip. Do you believe there's a difference between being in God's hands and being in the enemy's hands? I sure do. He does not love you. He doesn't take care of you. He would not die for you. And he doesn't have the power of one who should be worthy of your trust. Now, most of the world will tell you that's not true. But that's part of the deception. It's part of the deception. Most of the world will say, well, I'm my own person. You know, I'm not with God and I'm not with the devil. In fact, I'm something better than both of those things. But John says, we know that's not true. It's something we know that that's part of the deception. And I ask you this morning, are you convinced of that? Like, do you know that? Like, because you need to know that. Believers understand this. Are you convinced? Because you need to be. Because if you're not convinced, then the world will be a constant temptation for you. It just will. You'll think there's something of value out there, that it's worth it to devote your time and energy to what it offers. When it says out of its own heart and its own ideas on life and its own ideas of morality and its own ideas of what's valuable and what's not, there'll be something there that you go, yeah, that, I, I want to pursue that as well. Now, John gives us a wonderful truth here. While the lost cannot resist that, you can say no to the wicked one. You don't have to fall for that. You can say no to the world's philosophies and the world's temptations. And isn't that one of the enemy's lies that he brings to us? He says, you'll never change. You'll never overcome your struggles with sin. You'll never know the abundant life that Jesus promised. You're not even really saved. And when you live under that kind of beat down day after day, it's awful, isn't it? But you don't have to live that way. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? That's the truth. There's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. But why is that the case? Well, there's more said. There's there now for no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk after the flesh, but not after the Spirit. We have a whole different way of living now. Now, why is this true? Verse 2, Romans 8, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. I don't have to live for sin anymore. I don't have to live the way the world lives. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Do you believe that? That the righteousness of the law was fulfilled on your behalf in Christ. When God looks at you, he sees you as having fulfilled all the law in Christ. Do you believe that? Are you convinced that if you're in Christ Jesus, 
that the righteousness of the law has already been accomplished in you because it has. It's true. Well, the third unassailable truth that we need to add to our arsenal is that we can know Jesus better each day. He says, the enemy can't have you. The world isn't your home. And thirdly, you can, know Jesus, you can know Jesus better each day. And we know that the Son of God has come, 1 John 5, 20, and has given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true. He says, listen, we know that Jesus came. It happened. Just as sure as yesterday happened, Jesus came. Believers know that. And we know also that He has given us an understanding that we might know Him. And understanding means a way of thinking. Jesus has given us a way of thinking. That word given, it's in the perfect tense, which again, it means it's something that's forever settled and unchanging. Jesus has given us a way of thinking that's forever settled and unchanging, that as a result, any person from any time period who is born again can know Him. Can, and the word here, know, means it's now this know by experience. Can have a relationship with Him that is true the real Jesus, the genuine God, Jesus Christ. When Jesus became a man, He gave us the truth. He gave us a correct way to think about things. And that correct way to think about things doesn't change with time, and it doesn't change with public opinion. We don't ever have to look at it and go and say, well, you know, but it's 2,000 years later. Things are different now. Things may be different, but our way of thinking has never changed. He gave it to us forever settled. We don't ever have to go, well, we probably need to change some of these things that Jesus taught us to, to think this way. Nope, we don't have to do that. It was given and it was meant to apply forever. He's given us a way of thinking. It doesn't matter what, how much time goes by, and it doesn't matter if public opinion changes. Well, maybe we should look at this differently because the majority of people are thinking differently about this. No, He gave us a way to think about things, and that's how we're going to know Him, by not changing or altering that. If you are a believer, you absolutely know that, that the truth that he gave us, it's, it's settled. But it's not just the fact that there is truth and a correct way to think about things. A believer is convinced that the truth Jesus gave us leads to a real and meaningful relationship with him. Listen, if I could have everybody's attention, you know, if you're daydreaming right now or thinking about what the football season might look like, pay attention to this. If you don't hear anything today, hear this. You can have a real and meaningful relationship with Jesus. That's what it's all about. You can know him better day by day because he's real. That's what the word true means, that which is genuine, that which is real. When we get our eyes off that, when we get our eyes on some of the wonderful things that we do have in this life. I was reading this morning and I was just thanking the Lord, Lord, you've given me a really easy life. Like, I've had a great life. You know, my trials compared to other people's trials have not been anything close. Thank you. Like, I've, I've had a wonderful life. There are wonderful things to enjoy here. The Bible says God's given us all things to enjoy richly. There are wonderful things. Celebrated my son's birthday yesterday and seeing his smile when he opened up his gift. Laughing as we ate the ice cream cake wonderful. And when we get our eyes too much focused on some of the wonderful things in this life, they become too high of a priority. We can easily think to ourselves, man, heaven sounds boring. 
Why would I want to be there? I mean, Jesus, I mean, he sounds boring. I don't know what heaven will be like. But when you read the end of Revelation, what it mentions is, is we're going to see his face. I have never seen Jesus. I couldn't imagine what it'd be like. I don't like being away from Bev for like four days. Uh, she's sick right now, and so you know, we're kind of keeping a distance and whatnot. I miss her. You know, I want to talk, and she's sleeping a lot, trying to recover. I couldn't imagine just, hey, I'm not going to see you again for 30 years. I've never seen Jesus. I want to, I want to see him. Like, I want to see his eyes. I want to see his face. I want to talk to him. I want to sing to him where I can see his reaction. Instead of just maybe imagining it or thinking about it as I'm praying. What makes heaven heaven is certainly, there's so many wonderful things there, but what makes it heaven is seeing him, being with him finally being with him. If you're here this morning, you're thinking, I, I don't have a, a real and meaningful relationship with Jesus, then please, please, please do not end this book without doing something about that. Because if you, you do, you've missed the point. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus praying to the Father, he said, this is eternal life that they may know you and that they may know me. That's it. That's the entire point of the cross. God loves you and he doesn't want to be separated from you. I've heard people, theologians, make up all of the reasons for the cross, but none of them are biblical. Oh, they make logical sense and they, they seem to somehow glorify and elevate God in some way and how mighty and how majestic he is, and yet it, nothing will magnify him if we do not magnify his word, which he says he magnifies above his own name. And he says... This is eternal life. They might know you. They might know me. That's the entire point of the cross. God loves you, and he doesn't want to be separated from you. He came to earth, and he died on the cross to pay for your sin, the sin that caused the separation in the first place between you and him. And if Christianity to you is something other than experiencing God's forgiveness so you can have a meaningful relationship with Jesus, then you are missing out on what it means to have eternal life. I'm not saying you don't have it. I'm saying you're missing out on what it means to have it. And if you aren't experiencing the, what it means to have eternal life, then it means either you have not or are not receiving what Jesus gave. Because it says we know that he's given us this so that we can know him. If you're missing out on that, it means you're thinking, still being influenced by other things. And can I tell you what those other things are promising you? They are not real. The fact that real life is about knowing Jesus better day by day is an unassailable truth. And I don't know about you, but it's something that keeps me going day by day because I know it's true. Think of all the words in Romans chapter 8, that famous chapter, in light of the fact of why they're there. I and mean, we say, oh, I'm more than a conqueror, you know, nothing shall separate us. What, why is that significant? Because Paul just spent eight chapters telling you all that Christ did to bring you to himself. 
and what it means to be in Him, to be justified, to be in the process of being sanctified and the promise of being glorified someday. He says, what shall we say then to all these things? Romans 8, 31. Like, what's, what do we conclude? So what? What's the so what? If God be for us, who could be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If you're in him and you come to him, he's going to freely give you all things. He's not going to go, well, I'd like to give it to you, but you need to give me like seven days of godliness first. Nope. You're in Christ. He just wants to give you more. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Doesn't matter. You say you're a Christian. You say you're a child of God. You messed up. Yeah, but thankfully, you're not the one who justifies me. It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Doesn't matter. It's Christ that died. Yea, rather is risen again. Who's even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. Again, the enemy can come to me and say, you are a bad believer. You, you don't deserve heaven. You're right. But I'm not going to argue with you about the details. Take it up with my lawyer. He's not only receives me, but he is praying for me interceding for me. So all the accusations and all the condemnations you bring, he is standing up on my behalf. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Nope. Distress? Nope. Persecution? Nope. Famine? Nakedness? Peril? Sword? Nope. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. No. None of those things. None of those things will ever separate me from Christ's love. In all those things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Why? For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What tragedy or what trial or what opposition can stop you when you're convinced of that? Nothing can. Because you can take everything from me and I still have my relationship with Jesus. We know that we can know him. That is true. I don't need anything else, even though it may be painful. I don't need it. I've got him. And then John reminds us of a fourth unassailable truth in the last half of this verse. He says, we also know that we are in him that is true, even in his son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. He says, we know that we are in him. Our identity is in him. Identity is a big topic of conversation today. And this is because our culture is seeking to find identity by looking inward. Our culture is telling you, ask the question, who are you? What are you? Why are you? But a believer is convinced that their identity is found outside of themselves and it is found in Jesus Christ. A believer is convinced that the identity I get as a child of God and a joint heir with Christ is the only real unchangeable identity that exists. Any other identity I can adopt will break down at some point depending upon how I feel, what's going on around me, or how others perceive me. Any other of them. You say, I'm identifying as a successful whatever, this career. But what happens when you don't have the ability to maintain that anymore? Doesn't matter. Any other identity, if you look inward to find some sense of meaning or worth to who you are, what you are, and why you are, it will break down at some point. If you find your identity as being a beautiful woman, 
love you ladies, but you're going to run out of ammo at some point. You're not forever going to be looking in the mirror and rest in that. Or some of you guys, you think you're beautiful, same deal. Some of you think you're beautiful. Everything else is assailable. This is not. Think about it. Do you ever have to wake up as a Christian and wonder if you're in Christ? Like if all of a sudden something changed, you wake up and you go, oh no, I'm not in Christ today. Never. Do you ever have to worry, wake up and wonder that God will look at you and say, you're not my kid today. You were yesterday, but not today. You never have to worry about that. That's the whole point of Romans 8. Never have to worry about that. Nor do I have to worry about waking up and finding someone else in control of the universe, or that the rules have changed, or that God's love has changed. Never. You see, we are in him that is true. Jesus is real. We are in him that is true. Even in his son, Jesus Christ, he is God's son, the savior of the world, the coming king. He is always on the throne. He always loves you, and he never, ever changes. What better identity is there to have than that? Who cares what people say? You're a bigot. I'm in Christ. I don't need any other identity. You're unintelligent. Maybe true, but I'm in Christ. I don't need to have an identity that says I'm intelligent or I'm accepted as intelligent. You're a fool. You believe in fairy tales. I don't need to have an identity of, of being a part of the club. I'm already part of the most important club. And therefore, who cares what the devil says? He says, you're a failure, or you're not good enough, or you aren't lovable. Doesn't matter. Call me whatever you want. I'm God's child. I'm a joint heir with Jesus. No validation is necessary when God himself is the one who says, you are mine, and I will never change my thoughts about that. We know that we are in him that is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. Why does that matter the most? Because this is the true God and eternal life. Two reasons. This is the true God. Jesus is God. He is the real God, the genuine God. Don't let anyone ever tell you, by the way, the Bible does not teach this. Right here it tells us that He is the true God. And being in Him is what it means to have eternal life. John 1.4, the gospel, it says, in Him was life, and that life was the light of men. As God, Jesus is self-existent. He has an eternal life within Himself. He's the source of life, and He's given it to us. As a believer, the fact that Jesus is the real deal and that knowing him is having eternal life, then that's, that's your identity. That's, that's, that's an unassailable fact. You don't need anything else. So are you convinced of that, that Jesus is God Almighty and that he will never change and that the only identity you need is to be in him? Are you convinced of that? Or do you struggle trying to find your identity elsewhere, in your job, or your achievements, or what group you belong to, or how you feel, or what you feel you should feel like? I'm not saying struggling with that makes you an unbeliever, but I would say to you is this, rejecting it, if you reject the identity you have in Christ as being enough, you're not going to have the assurance and the joy 
in life that God promises. You can't. You just can't. Because you'll always be looking for something that you'll never truly find in a satisfactory way. Which is why John closes with a simple but oh so important exhortation for us. He says, little children, keep yourself from idols. Amen. It is truth. Everything I'm spoken to you, he says, it's true. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Little children, we've heard this phrase all throughout the letter. It means born ones. Every believer he's talking to right now. Every believer, he says, you can know these things. You can know that you have eternal life. You can know that God hears and answers your prayers. You can know that God's standard should never be moved. You can know that even though you fall short of God's standard doesn't mean you lose your salvation. You can know that the enemy in the world cannot have you. And you can know that eternal life is about knowing him. And you can know that the only identity you need is in him. And in light of that knowledge, John says, I don't care if you're a baby believer or you've been a believer for 80 years. He goes, this is your mission. Keep yourselves from idols. The word keep yourselves means make an effort to stay away from. Put a close guard on yourself. And the thing we're making an effort to stay away from and putting a close guard on is idols. An idol is anything that occupies the place that belongs to God. I love the ending to this book because this is so John. This was the man who rested on the chest of Jesus hearing the heart thump of God Almighty in a human body. This is the guy who gave himself the title, I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. This is the guy that we call the apostle of love. This is a guy who knew Jesus. And what you hear at the end here is him pleading with you. He says, I want you to know Jesus like I do. I want you to know his love. I want you to know what it means to have a deep, meaningful relationship with him. And that final mission is, don't let anything get in the way of that. Don't let anything get in the way of that. Don't let anything steal your heart. Not sin, not false teachers, not the world. Make every effort to keep your guard up against that. Because this is what it all comes down to. He says, I want you to know you're saved. I want you to go deeper with Jesus. I want you to experience the joy, all the joy that God has for you. But he knows there are others out there who are seeking to rip you off. And so I ask you this morning, who has your heart? What has your heart? Do you make an effort to stay away from the things that can steal your heart away from knowing Christ in that loving way? Do you put a close guard on the altar of your heart? Are you going deeper day by day with Jesus? I can't think of a better way to close our study of 1 John than celebrating the Lord's Supper. And so as the team comes up, let's all stand. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're remembering what He did to prove His great love for us. Look, if you wake up tomorrow and you think, ah, oh, Jesus, do you love me? Go right back to the cross and ask the question because you'll find your answer right there. And that's what we're remembering when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We hold the elements there. We're reminding ourselves of what He did to prove His love to us. We're also recommitting ourselves to what we know is true, that Jesus is the one that's true, and we know Him. We know Him. And we're reminding ourselves what life is all about, getting to know Him better day by day. Amen?
So Lord, we give this time to you now. We don't want ever to anything to steal our heart away. Not sin, not wrong teaching, and not the world. We've been born of you. We belong to you. You're keeping us. You're going to finish what you started in us. So Lord, we want, we want that deep, meaningful relationship with you. So Lord, as we remember you this morning, we receive the truths that you've spoken to our hearts through your word today. We receive John's word to us and we receive his exhortation in our mission. We just want to love you more. We just want to know you better. Draw us close as we celebrate your supper and remember you in Jesus' name. Amen.